0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxess. Morning, morning. hope you guys had a chance to be at uh, the Sammy Center uh, last week. I know some of you couldn't because you were traveling, but if you weren't able to be there, I have to tell you, it was a great service. It was wonderful. The worship team did a great job. It was a wonderful time to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This week, we are back into the book of Genesis. And Genesis, it actually is a very big book, if you've noticed. There's a lot of chapters in there. It covers as much history in that one book as the rest of the Bible does combined. And now, in the book of Genesis, it doesn't cover those 2,000 years of history exhaustively, Moses, the human writer of the book of Genesis, what he does is he goes along and he takes certain people or certain situations and he zooms in on them so we can see how God is working and what God is doing in their lives. And since Genesis 12, Moses has been zoomed in on Abraham, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And today, as we get to Genesis chapter 23... In fact, for the next three chapters, we're going to find the closing of their life story. Today begins the passing of the baton from one generation to the next generation. If you've ever been around uh, uh, the death of someone, you know how incredibly tough it is. Because today, Sarah, Abraham's wife, dies. If you've ever lost a mother in death, you could understand this day. You've ever lost a wife in death, you could understand this day. It's the passing of the matriarch. Now, um, last week we we talked about in the resurrection how Jesus' grave is empty and that because of our faith in him, that when we die, Jesus Christ promises to bring our spirits home to be with him. But in the meantime, our bodies remain in the grave until the resurrection. There's going to be death. There is going to be funerals. And as I was studying Genesis chapter 23, I figured that this was, seemed like a really good chapter to talk about something that we never like to talk about. Which is death and funerals. I mean, think about it death and funerals, it's, that's worse talking about than like taxes and the healthcare system and the political election all combined. Nobody likes talking about it, but this is a very good place. for us to do some good study and to do incredible practical and spiritual good for each one of us on death and funerals. So, take out your outlines. Follow along with me. How can I prepare for a funeral? Because barring the return of Christ, each one of us will either have one and or experience one for someone we love. First thing we learn here in the text, live each day of marriage like it could be your last. Live each day of marriage like it could be your last. Let's begin in the first two verses of the 23rd chapter. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. For those of you who are trivia buffs, you need to realize I think I believe this is the only time in the Bible you find a woman's age given when she dies. I could be wrong. There may be another occurrence of it someplace. I'm not aware of it, but it just seems sort of strange. There's only one place you find a woman's age when she dies. Now, ladies, I know you are very vain about sharing your age. You never like to tell anyone what your true age is because you want everyone to think that you're actually younger than you are. And here's the problem: now you have biblical precedents for not sharing your age, because you don't find a lot of this in the Bible. In fact, men's ages are all over the place. Guys, we handle aging well, apparently. You know, this guy was such and such years when he died, and this guy was such and such years when he died. But ladies, you just don't say a thing. So, here's our one occurrence: Sarah died at the age of 127. But by the way, I'm sure all of her friends said she didn't look a day over hundred. You know, think about this. She died 37 years after the birth of Isaac. 62 years earlier, her and Abraham had left for the promised land. If she was married at age 15, which is the typical age in that culture when you married, that would mean she celebrated her 112th wedding anniversary. 112? We thought 50 was golden. Abraham, incidentally, goes on to live for another 38 years. Abraham eventually goes on to get married and have subsequent children after her death, which was interesting to me because I know that when somebody loses a spouse that they have been married to for many, many years, they often think that that is the end of life. And there is no subsequent chapter. But apparently for Abraham, there was. And that would be an encouragement for for us. And I started thinking about this. It's sort of strange to me. Because it seems like Sarah's death is unexpected. It's like everything's going along and all of a sudden she dies. Just drops. That's just the end of it. 127. Now, in biblical times, that seems to me to be a little bit young, doesn't it? In fact, notice something here. It talks about Abraham mourning and Abraham weeping. This is another first, by the way. This is the first time that weeping and crying is recorded in the Bible. Um, The crying wasn't at the death of Abel when Cain killed him for at least that's not recorded in Scripture. The crying, you don't hear it from Noah's family. When people are clawing on the side of the ark to come in as they're all drowning and dying, you don't hear that, but you find it here. Here with Abraham when his wife dies. And incidentally, the Hebrew word for weeping here isn't just like this little tiny pouty sobs. This is like a heartbroken, wailing cry. This is Abraham that is totally heartbroken at the loss of his wife. Now, think about this. When somebody has a terminal illness, there is time to prepare yourself. When you see somebody slowly decline, you can sort of emotionally brace yourself for what lies ahead. In fact, sometimes when people finally pass away after a long illness, there's almost a sense of relief. That their suffering is over with. But apparently, Abraham had no chance to prepare himself. Abraham had no chance to brace himself. It seems like suddenly, she was gone. Was it a heart attack? Blood got to the brain? I don't know. But what I do know is there's a lesson in this for us. Here's the lesson. And by the way, if you're here and you're married this morning, now's the appropriate time to reach over and grab the wife the hand of your spouse. Here's the lesson. Death always comes as a surprise. It does. Even if it's a terminal illness that is drawn out, sometimes it goes much faster than you expect. Sometimes it glows much slower than you expect. But here's my question. If your spouse the one you love so dearly that you've spent your life with, were to die unexpectedly tonight, what sins have you not confessed to them? What things have you not made right with them that you are just sort of letting float along for years because you realize tomorrow you may not get that chance? If your spouse that you love was to die tonight, have you told them, I love you enough? Or have you let that emotional chill just sort of hang in the air between the two of you? You've sort of tolerated it. I've been in the ministry for about 20 some odd years now, and I've noticed that at funerals there's two kinds of tears. There's the tears that many people go through, which is normal, which is loss and grief. And I've lost somebody that I love so much, and they're gone, and I won't have the joy of having them in their life. But I've also seen a different set of tears, a deeper set of tears, where the mourning and the pain doesn't seem to almost ever go away. And those are tears of regret. I could never take back those words. I wish I could do this all over again, but it's... There's no chance anymore. The opportunity is gone. I can't make it right. If your spouse were to die tonight unexpectedly, what kind of tears would you shed? Tears of loss or tears of regret? Because the opportunity to make it right is now gone. And I challenge you that even when there's a long, drawn-out illness, Death comes as a, as a surprise. Some of you know that um, that my mom passed away of cancer about two years ago, and we were out there. And you guys, as a church, were incredibly gracious to us to allow Cindy and I to be there. And uh, as the cancerous tumors continued to grow and she got, became in more pain, the hospice nurse there um, said, well, we're just going to give her a little bit of morphine. We're going to give her some Roxanol. And they started putting it under her tongue. And we said, oh, that'll be good. That'll help her to rest well. And all of a sudden, my mom went to rest, and she went to sleep, and we thought that was good. But then as she started to stir again and, and start to wake up, they'd give her more Roxanol. And I even, it went on for, like, days She didn't wake up. And I remember talking to the hospice nurse. I said, you didn't tell me about this. You didn't prepare me. I didn't know that I just heard the last words from my mother's mouth already. She said, well, we we could wake her up, but trust me, you don't want to see it. Death came as a surprise. Wasn't prepared for it. My challenge for you is this. Live each day of your marriage like it could be your last Make sure that if your spouse were to die tonight, you would have no regrets of things that you needed to confess or things that you needed to make right. Second thing we see from this text, the most important day of marriage, by the way, is the last, not the first. It is. It's the last. Everybody focuses on the first day of marriage, don't they? Like you have bridal magazines bridal expos. And some ladies, you know, they won't eat for like two months so they fit into that wedding dress. And then guys, you know, they will floss, they will shave, they'll even brush their teeth so they look their absolute best on that day, which is a reminder, by the way, ladies, take good pictures because he won't ever, ever look that good ever again. That's just the simple truth. But the most important day of marriage is not that first day. The most important day of your marriage is that last day. It means that you are able to keep your promise to the end, to death do us part, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. And let me just tell you, if you are going to make it to the most important day, which is the last day, there is going to mean to be a ton of forgiveness in your marriage. A ton of compromise in your marriage. Humility in your marriage. You will need to die to self in your marriage if you're going to make it through. Because marriages are hard. It's not always peaches and cream. Think about Abraham and Sarah. We don't know anything about the first part of their marriage, but we do know what happened in the middle part of their marriage. And boy, was it rough. Remember, Abraham has this little nasty habit that when he gets out in public, he takes off his wedding ring. Ladies, if your husband would take off his wedding ring in public and try to be a single guy, what would you do to him? This is when you use the rolling pin, right? You whack him one. Because Abraham will go out in public and start pretending like she was just his sister, you know, nothing between us, you know. No kids. And twice... Twice what happened is Sarah got scooped up, and if it were not for the supernatural intervention of God, she would have committed adultery twice on him. Not at her will, because of his foolish choices. And then add this up. You know, it also happens that at Sarah's suggestion, Abraham gets a girlfriend in midlife. And Abraham gets the girlfriend pregnant. And then it gets worse than that. Abraham's girlfriend lives with them and Abraham's girlfriend's kid. Is that hillbilly or what? That is a tough, messed up marriage. There's a lot of forgiveness, a lot of difficulty to make it through. But by the way, as far as we know, for the last 37 years of their marriage, it was smooth sailing. Nothing in scriptures recorded about any kind of these disastrous things that happened in their relationship. So by the way, this is an encouragement. If you're in a tough patch of your marriage right now and you say it could never get better, don't say that. It got better in Abraham and Sarah's marriage. The last 37 years they seemed to make it through and they had better days. So you got to look forward to this way. The most important day of a marriage is not the first day. It is the last day. You have to think about that way. In my premarital counseling, I am such a depressing guy. I really am. You know, because the couples come into me and they are so excited. They have those starry eyes and they can't wait to get married. And I just tell them, by the way, just so you know, guys, the commitment you're about ready to make in front of God has nothing to do with love whatsoever. It is a raw commitment to sacrifice yourself yourself to sacrifice your time, to sacrifice your money, to literally sacrifice your life for somebody else. It is putting your life on the altar for the person that you think is just like you, but after five years of marriage, you'll discover they're nothing like you at all. Isn't that the truth? But that's what marriage is. This is why the Bible says that marriage It parallels the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ gave himself up. He gave up his life for us. And in the same way, we give up our life for our spouse. Even if they change. That guy that you married who was studly, over time he could become rather portly. That woman you married who was a ravishing beauty, Over time, she starts wearing sweats and a t-shirt becomes sort of homey when you get married. You know, it's for better or for worse, sickness and in health. In fact, there may be a lot of sickness and not a lot of health. It may mean you have to give up your dreams, give up your future, give up your money. Your life is consumed in caring for your spouse as they slowly dawdle on and eventually die. But see, what matters is the last day. That's the important day, not just the first day. That person that you married that was so funny could all of a sudden become moody. Because maybe you discover, as time goes on, they have depression. And instead of all of a sudden giving so much energy and life to your family, they're draining. And it's give and give and give. But that's what marriage is. Just like Christ gave up his life for us. Remember, what's the most important day in your marriage is the last, not the first. Get that straight in your mind as you look forward to what marriage is all about, making it to the end. So, we've learned the most important day of marriage is the last, not the first. We've learned to live each day of marriage like it could be the last. Third, funerals are a great opportunity to show our trust in God's promises. We have learned this, that God was really working on Trying to stretch Abraham's faith. To teach him that he was faithful and he would keep his promise no matter what would happen. And that's like Isaac. They had to wait 25 years for the birth of Isaac. Isaac didn't come till after Sarah was in menopause. But the promises that were given to Abraham weren't just for the birth of Isaac. The promises that were given to Abraham were that he would inherit the promised land. But here's the problem. Sarah dies, and Abraham is old, and they still don't own anything in the promised land. Sarah's death becomes an opportunity, another opportunity for faith. What typically would happen in this culture in this time is when you died, you, your body was brought back to your family burial site, your family tomb. For Abraham and Sarah, that would have been back in Ur by Babylon, But Abraham makes a break and says, we're not going back there. I believe in faith that God will keep his promise. Just like he was good to keep his promise about the birth of Isaac against all odds, he'll be good to keep his promise about giving this land to my descendants even against all odds. And So he says, I believe and trust that God will keep his word. Let me look at these promises. Let me just read them to you. Here's a couple of them. Genesis thirteen, fifteen. For all the land that you see I will give to you, to your offspring forever. Genesis thirteen, seventeen. A wise walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Genesis seventeen eight, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, I will be their God. So Abraham believes this. You know, God's going to keep his promises. If he didn't keep his promises when I'm living, he'll keep his promises after I'm dying. God's promises are not just for this life. But they are good for this life and into eternity. And here's my challenge for you. We often forget that God's promises to us are not just for this life. In fact, the most important promises that he ever gives to us are for the next life and therefore eternity. And we need to live that way. Let me show you what it says in Hebrews 11:24 through 26 about Moses. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing to rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses lived with his eye on the promise of eternity, not just earthly joy and pleasure. That's why he chose to be identified with the people of God. Hebrews 11.22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus Of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. God will keep his promise. He will bring you back to the land. It's been hundreds of years and it would actually be hundreds of years more, like 400 years more almost, until this actually happens. But Moses says, you know what, or Joseph says, you know what, make me freeze-dried, shrink-wrapped, and pack me in a shipping container because you're gonna go. God will keep his promises. Look what this says out here in Scripture. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who who fall asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The Bible reminds us that after death, God promises us life is actually better. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which Paul says is better by far. God's promise. In fact, in the book of Revelation, he also promises that in eternity there'll be no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. That's a good promise, but it's not for this life, it's for eternity. Number four the funeral is a way to show your love, not your cheapness. (laughs) This will be fun. Let me just read this long text here. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now the Hittites answered Abraham, "Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in the gate of the city." The way this story starts to unfold, Abraham is going to bury his wife in the promised land. It's faith. He has faith that God will someday keep his promise and give this land to his descendants. And what he th- has a problem, though. He doesn't own any land. Now, this is the deal. In this culture, it is not easy to acquire land. Land is typically owned by the family, and it is passed from fathers to sons. That's the only way to get it. It's sort of like farmland in Iowa. The only way you get it is you marry into it, right? Now, here's the deal. Abraham is not going to be marrying into the Hittites. They're pagans. You're not going to be doing that. So he, for the most part, his idea of acquiring land is pretty much not an option. So he tells the Hittites his situation. I've got to bury my dead. I want, I want a tomb to be able to do it. And the Hittites are like, oh, you're a mighty prince. We love you. No problem. You can bury your wife in any of our tombs. Sounds good, except here's the problem. What would it be like if you buried mom in an all-Hindu cemetery? What kind of message would that send to subsequent generations who didn't know mom's faith and came and looked at her grave? what would it be like if you buried mom in an all-Muslim cemetery? What would that say to the grandchildren who came to visit her? Probably not the message you wanted to leave. So Abraham's like, you know, no, I can't do that, guys. I need to acquire a, a place for my own burial rites. And he asks, can I get this field? This field, um, and the idea <coughs> is, he says, can I get this field from Ephron, the Hittite, and Ephron's like, oh, oh, you know, it's okay, you don't just need the cave, excuse me, I meant to say he wants the cave from Ephron, he says, you don't just get the cave, but you need to get the field with it. What this is, is Ephron is trying to drive up the price, it's like a package deal, you know, you get the two things together, and it gets to, what what happens is sort of interesting here, because it sounds like Ephron just offers to give him the field. That's not exactly what's going on here. In the Middle East, what they do is they have a very nice bartering system. And it always starts out with saying, Oh, I give you, I give you. They're not really giving you anything. What they're doing is trying to get you interested in something. Let me show you something. Isn't this thing nasty? All the guys are like, "This is cool," and the girls are like, "What in the world is that?" They're turning their their, their noses up at it. Let me tell you about this. I was I, when I was younger. I went on a number of mission trips. And, you know, when you go on a mission trip as a young guy, you're always looking for a cool souvenir. And um, I was in South America, and. There was the street vendors, and like all the guys were getting the chintzy chin- chin- souvenirs, and I saw this thing, and I thought, this thing is so cool. It's got like a tiger claw over here. It's got some kind of really gnarly animal on it with a long tooth on it, and it's got knives in it. Oh, this, is, this thing is pretty cool. And so I started to talk to this guy on the street vendor is this thing was more expensive, and I had money for it. And I'm like, hey, how how much? How much? And they give you the price. And the deal is, I was told in mission school, they give you the price, but they don't expect you to pay the price. See, what they're looking for is this little game that takes place where you start to barter back and forth. He said the price. I'm like, "No, no, 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 that's too expensive. No, 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 no. And he goes, no, no, no. I give it to you for less. And we start this back and forth, and back and forth, and eventually, we meet somewhere in the middle, and I end up with this really gnarly-looking piece of roadkill, which I bring home. By the way, this is pre-9-11. I'm not sure I would have gotten this on the plane. I bring this home, and I'm like, this is the coolest thing. I go show all my posse friends, you know, about this really nasty set of knives I have. and, And guess where I hang it? Over my bed in my room. And to my mom and my dad are like, I cannot believe this. And in fact, I had it up there for a few years, and when I eventually moved out, and the room was there still, my parents asked me if I would come home and take it down. Because they said it looks like a piece of roadkill. But it was really cool, you know. But I got it through bartering and through negotiations. And this is sort of what's going on here with Abraham. He's bartering, he's negotiating with Ephron, and Ephron eventually says, Oh, I'll give you the the field and I'll give you the cave for 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? You know what 400 shekels of silver is? A lot of money. 2 2, 2 Samuel 24, 24 talks about the temple mount where the temple was built when it was bought. You know how many shekels of silver was purchased for? Fifty. 400 shekels of silver for a cave in a field is a rip-off. But notice, Abraham doesn't engage in the game. He takes the high price. 400 shekels, I'll pay it. Why does he pay and not negotiate? I don't know exactly, but here's my thoughts. When it came to the death of his wife... He didn't want to be remembered with the Hittites by what a good businessman he was, by what a hard deal he drove. He wanted, them to remember, he wanted them to remember one thing, how much he loved her and how much he was willing to pay for her. Because everybody walked away that day and they said, man, you know how much he paid for that? He didn't even negotiate. Man, he must love her. And here's a little application for you guys. Just real simple. I know this sounds sort of silly, but it's true. When the person you love, your spouse, when they die, don't go cheap on the funeral. You know, um, if you don't have the money, well, then you can't spend the money. But be prepared to spend the money. So the message that comes out of that funeral is, oh, man, look how much they loved him. Look how much he loved her. Maybe a simple application point. This is going to sound sort of silly, but it's true. Maybe the simple application point for some of you is to go out and buy some life insurance. It's a way that you can properly honor the person you love when they die. And that's what Abraham did. Let me give you another thought here. I want you to consider the difference between burial and cremation. Burial and cremation. Now, Notice here, Abraham bought a cave to bury his wife. And typically what would go on in that day is they would have a cave and they would etch into the wall of the cave a bench. They would put the deceased person on the bench and they would leave them there for a year where their bodies would decay and the flesh would go away. Then they'd go in about a year later, they'd take the bones, they'd put it into a box called an ossuary. So this way they could sort of reuse the cave. <laughs> for subsequent family members. In fact, this is the same cave where Abraham is buried, the same cave where Isaac is buried, Rebekah is buried, Jacob is buried, Leah is buried, and and so on, and probably a bunch of other ones that we don't even have here. But I want you to notice that they buried them, not cremated them. Now, the Bible, let me just tell you something. The Bible doesn't say that cremation is wrong. It, It doesn't. The Bible doesn't say that cremation affects your resurrection. It, it it doesn't, but you need to know this. And this is a lot of people are ignorant about this. There is a long history in the church about preference for burial over cremation. In the Bible, typically people were buried, not cremated. It, it's in there. Now, cremation. I know it's cheap. Cremation, I know, is getting to be the more common practice. In fact, cremation was the typical way that the Romans dealt with bodies. But in the Roman world, Christians followed Jews and they buried bodies instead of burning bodies. Why? That was typically the way it was practiced. Once again, let me tell you, this is not a right or wrong issue. This is a precedence. Here's why because the sacredness of the body. The body was sacred, so it was buried, not burned. Also, cremation oftentimes was seen as pictorially picturing the fires of hell for a Christian, which wouldn't be appropriate. But most importantly of all, a body was buried. It was planted in the earth in anticipation of the resurrection where the self-same body that was buried would one day at the sound of Christ's voice come forth. You see, typically what happens with cremation, cremation uh, erases history. It erases the, the body so it is burned down to dust. But burial leaves a place. It leaves a spot. It leaves a memory of that person where that self-same person will come back at the resurrection. Rome, it was a very cremation-orientated culture. But in that culture, Christians, in statement of the resurrection, in statement that they were coming back, not just their spirit, but their body as well would be raised from the grave, just like Jesus Christ they buried. And they lined them up. Here's where they'll come back. In fact, when they ran out of space horizontally, which was a problem in a city like Rome, they went vertically, and they created what's called the catacombs. In fact, they even had a word in Greek. It's called, they were buried in the koemeteria, which literally means the sleeping place because that's where the bodies were sleeping until the resurrection. And Koemateria came over into English and we call it cemetery. Same thing. Same word. It means literally the sleeping place of the dead while they are waiting for the resurrection. Now, is a burial more costly? Yes. Is a burial take up more land? Yes. But is a burial maybe a better witness to the hope of the resurrection? That that very selfsame body that is in that earth will come back? No, cremation, it typically tends to erase the history of the body. Now, like I said, this is not a right. Or wrong like sin issue this is a preference issue and you need to understand that in a very cremation oriented world the early church intentionally chose burial as a statement for the resurrection in fact that has been the long practice of the church throughout history and even in america the first cremation did not take place in our country until 1876 Everything else before that, as far as we know, is burial. And at that first cremation, you know why they did that? It's an anti-Christian statement. Because at the funeral, they read Hindu scriptures and Charles Darwin instead of the Bible. That's the purpose of it. In fact, even as recent as 1962, did you know that only 5% of Americans were cremated in 1962? But since that time, cremation has skyrocketed because it's popular because it's cheap, but I think one of the reasons that it's become so popular, even among Christians, is we've lost sight of the long-term Christian history of burial, and burial, planting in the dust of the earth, that that very selfsame body will come back at the resurrections. And that's why Christians are buried in cemeteries, which means sleeping places, until the resurrection. So. Tonight when you do your, or this week when you do your life group worksheets, I have a question in there for you. Consider the difference between cremation and burial. Which way would you like to have your body handled for the future? Talk about it. Think about it. Last one, and this is sort of exciting. Leave a grave that will fuel faith for those who come after you. Abraham buys this field. And he trusts in the future that someday God will um, keep his promise and they will have this promised land. And as I mentioned, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and a host of other witnesses are buried there. And this grave becomes a united witness to their children, to their grandchildren, and to the many children after them that God is going to be a promise keeper, that God will eventually give them this land. And everybody who walks by this grave knows the reason that grave is there is because they believe God's going to keep his word. Now, as you know, in the big picture of biblical history, eventually, uh, Abraham's descendants go off to Egypt. They are there for 430 years before God brings them out, and he brings them back to the promised land. And when they go to the edge of the promised land, Moses sends out spies. Remember this in Numbers chapter 13. There are 12 spies that go into the promised land. Where do they go? A number of places, but one of the places they go is Hebron which is the location of Abraham and Sarah and the rest of the patriarch's grave. They come back from Hebron. Ten of those spies say, this land is filled with giants. We can't do it. But two of those spies, named Caleb and Joshua, it says, were men of faith. Here is what I think happened. I'm not saying 100%, but here's what I think. I think Caleb and Joshua stood at the grave of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, and they saw and they thought how God kept his word and God kept his promise in their life. And Isaac was conceived against all odds after Sarah had already entered menopause. God kept his word to them. And God had promised that their descendants would have the promised land. And here God was bringing them back. And God was telling them to take over the promised land. And you know what Caleb and Joshua said? You know, if God was faithful in their life to keep his word, God will be faithful in our life to keep his word. The bones of that grave shouted out to them and encouraged their faith in that moment. Now, if you're cremated and your ashes are scattered, is there any place that your descendants will ever be encouraged? If you're buried in hope of the resurrection, that's better. Your your descendants would hopefully look you up and, have their faith encouraged. But if you were to do something even on the tombstone itself that would be an encouragement for your children's, 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 children's faith, what would you say? What would you do? How could you have a grave that would encourage your children's, 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 children's to follow Jesus? Because you know the only person who's going to look you up is them. Some of you um, know this, and I found this incredibly encouraging for me. Um, My son David is the seventh-generation Truxes that is in America. Um, When my dad had us over um, in Pennsylvania, he took me to Lower Providence Presbyterian Church and took me to the graveyards. And I've had the biggest family reunion I think I've ever experienced, because there's not many Truxes unless you go to that graveyard. There is just... All over the place, Trux's graves. And the oldest ones, what I love about them is they have a testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. Let me show you just two of them. The first one, that's David Trux's, born in, died in 1897. Uh, president of the Board of Trustees of that church for 45 years. I didn't know, like, he was Dan Foote. That's what he was. I mean, that's what he was. Every single time the church was open, he was there. He took following Christ so seriously that he was a leader in the church for 45 years. You know how that encouraged my faith? Let me give you another one. Andrew Truxes, organist of lower-provident Presbyterian Church for 45 years. Next generation. Took Christ seriously. In the church, every time the doors are open, serving Christ as long as he can for as hard as he can. And then I'm sitting here at the time, I'm reading this, I'm studying to go in the ministry. And you know what that did for my faith? You know how those graves spoke forth? Encouragement for me? Your ancestors were leaders in their churches. They gave their life for Jesus Christ to serve him. And God has called you to do the same. You're in line with them. God was faithful in their life. He'll be faithful in your life all the way through. Here's my question for you, my one homework assignment for you when you go to lunch today. If you were to leave something on your tombstone that would encourage your children's children's children in their faith, what would it be? What would it be? And with that thought, let's pray. Dear Jesus, funerals remind us that we don't go on forever. But the legacy of our faith can reverberate down the canyons of time to be encouragement to our children and to our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and for generations that follow. I pray that you would help us to live faithfully and, and honorably to you, that we would invest well in our life, Lord, that if there's things that need to be made right between a husband and wife they would they would confess it and make it right because you never know how long you have to go. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to think clearly about what kind of legacy we want to leave behind. Even what kind of things we want done with our body. And whether we're buried or burned and what we want on our our tombstone. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to encourage others in Christ right here where we live today, but I ask that even after our death that you would use our life to encourage others in Jesus. And may even our grave be an encouragement to those who follow in our footsteps. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.